Well, we've already had a wonderful time uh, being together this morning. And as many of you know, yesterday was Veterans Day. It's a day that our country sets aside to be able to recognize those who have served in the various uh, branches of the military. So if you're here this morning and you served in any branch of the United States military, would you stand so that we can just recognize you and thank you for your service this morning? Thank you. Thank you very much, and thank you, thank you for your service. If you've got your Bibles this morning, I hope that you do, please take them out and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. I was actually thinking uh, this past week about my time in the service when I was serving in the United States Navy, and I was stationed overseas in Japan, and I had been there for about 14 months, and it was my first opportunity to go back home after having been away for that length of time. And so I had 30 days saved up and banked for leave. And so I boarded a plane and eventually finally got to, back to Gainesville, Georgia, right up here and was able to, 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 to go home and to spend time with my family and my friends. I was able to eat some good home cooking. I was able to sleep in every day, didn't have to get up and be anywhere. It was a fun time and, and I truly enjoyed it. But for all of you who've kind of been in situations like that, you know, you know what happens is that leave is over and the call of duty comes and you realize that you've got to go back. And so I had to get back on that plane and fly back to Misawa, Japan. And I remember getting off the, off the, the, the plane there and, and uh, getting a ride back to my barracks. And as I had my bags, you know, what I would able to take home and I, was, I had that and I was going back to my room and walking up those steps. And I can just remember the feeling of walking back up those steps knowing I was fixing to go back in that room. And the next morning, I had to report 6 a.m. to work a 12-hour shift. And I just remember feeling, man, this is the worst thing ever. You know, I, back home, I'd had mama's cooking. Back home, I'd, I had, I, you know, I, I had all of my friends and family. Back, back there, everything was good. But now, now things were much, much different. And I remember just feeling what a dramatic shift had taken place in my life. Well, this morning, as we are going to look at Mark chapter 9, I want you to know we are going to encounter a dramatic shift that takes place that's even more dramatic than anything that I ever experienced in my life. If you remember last week, we looked at the first 14, 13 verses of this chapter. And in the first 13 verses of Mark 9, what we see is that Jesus takes his inner three disciples, Peter, James, and John. He takes them up with him on top of a mountain to pray. And when they get there, it's in the process of praying that Luke tells us that Jesus transfigured before them. In other words, his, 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 uh, uh, his whole thing changed in how he was viewed. The disciples actually were able to see him in his brilliance and in his bright and shining glory that he had always had from before time. They were able to witness him that, in that way. Not only that, but they were also able to see the, the prophet Elijah. And, and Moses was, was appearing to them there on top of that mountain. It was great and fantastic things were taking place. The, the Shekinah glory of God, the cloud rested on top of the mountain, and God spoke to them from that cloud. What a great and beautiful and awesome and just a fantastic scene is portrayed by, by, by Mark there in the first 13 verses of this chapter. But then, then as we're going to read this morning, things changed drastically. When they came down back off of that mountain, when they came back to the valley, things were different. On the mountain, Peter had said to Jesus, Teacher, it, it is good for us to be here. But duty had called. 
And they had come back down the mountain, back to the valley. And in the valley, well, things were vastly different from how they had been. In fact, let's just begin reading there in verse 14. We'll see how, how everything changes. Verse 14, and, and when he, that is Jesus, came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. And immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeted him. And he asked the disciples, what are you discussing with them? And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? And one of the, in the crowd answered and said, teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams at the mouth and gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. And he answered him and said, oh, faithless generation, how long? shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. When they, then they brought him to him, and, and when he saw him, that is Jesus, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, in the New King James, it says, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. I believe a better translation there is, if I can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, verse 24, the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw the people, that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit and said to it, deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then that spirit cried out and convulsed him greatly and came out of him and he became as one dead so that many said he is dead, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose and when he had come into the house his disciples asked him privately why could we not cast it out so he said to him this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting brothers and sisters this is the word of God for the people of God let's pray together father we thank you for this day we thank you for what it's already meant to us. Thank you that Brian and Melita and others have come from Calvary Children's Home to be with us this morning. What a blessing it is to be in worship with them. Father, we thank you for their ministry. We pray your blessings would be upon it. Continue to guard them and guide them in all that they do. Lord, we're also grateful for the opportunity to open your word and to read it and to study it. And our prayer is, is that it will impact us, that it will affect us, that it will change us, that it will mold us into the men, women, boys, and girls that you desire us to be. And so we pray that that would be accomplished this morning for your glory and for our good. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I mentioned to you just how different things were, dramatically different things were from the mountaintop to the valley. And... and I, I was doing some reading this week and actually listened to some sermons, one by, by 
uh, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary President Danny Aiken, and I'm indebted to him for these insights. He describes it this way. He says, on the mountain, the kingdom of God is on display through his son who is radiantly glorified. But in the valley, the kingdom of Satan is on display through a son who has been terribly demonized. On the mountain, God the Father is honored by God the Son. In the valley, there is a father who is horrified by his son. On the mountain, three disciples are left amazed by the deity and power of God. But in the valley, the other nine disciples are found arguing and defeated and lacking in power. On the mountain, we are given a display of divine authority and a lesson about the future. In the valley, we are given a directive on prayer and a lesson about faith. And it really is that lesson about faith that we ought to turn our attention this morning. And it, and it actually, we know that this, this healing story is not just there for, for us to just pass through and, oh yeah, Jesus heals another another person and, and, and cast out another demon. No, there's something greater here for us to, to really focus our attention on. And what draws us to that attention is what we see there in verse 19. In verse 19, we read that Jesus lamented. He, he mourned over the fact that, that there was a lack of faith being demonstrated by those who were there in the valley. In fact, notice again what Jesus says there. He says, Oh, faithless generation." How long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? These are words of exasperation. These are words of, of frustration. And, and they are brought on by what Jesus encountered, what he saw, what he heard going on when he came back down from the mountain of transfiguration with his inner three disciples. In fact, William Lane in his commentary on this passage has written that the words of verse 19 express in a complaint the loneliness and anguish of the one authentic believer in a world which expresses only unbelief. Now, some scholars believe that Jesus' words of exasperation and frustration are, are directed toward his disciples who had, had shown themselves to be powerless in being able to, to, to cast out the demon from the boy. And, and to be sure, Jesus was very disappointed in his disciples and for good reason, as we will soon discover. However, I believe that when Jesus addresses this faithless and this unbelieving generation, he has a larger crowd in mind. In fact, from what I have read, I believe that, that there are three different expressions of faithlessness on display this morning in our text. And it is to those, those displays of faithfulness faithlessness that I want us to direct our attention this morning. The first one is that I want you to see is on your outline this morning. And the first example of faithlessness then we see is demonstrated by a refusal to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Faithlessness is demonstrated by refusing to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. Notice that back in there in verse 14, when Jesus, Peter, James, and John came down the mountain to reconnect with the other disciples... The first thing that Jesus saw was this large crowd of people gathered around and, and, and then he heard this dif disputing, this arguing, this, this loud rancorous talk that was taking place. And, and then he began to notice that that was taking place between some scribes who had arrived on the scene and his disciples. And so we might want to know, well, what were they arguing about? What was going on? What was all the language about? 
And, and Mark doesn't tell us specifically, but we know enough about the scribes and we know enough about their history to be able to at least understand why they were there. You see, the scribes had no belief in Christ. They were only there to attempt to try to, 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 to think that he was there so that they could trap him, so that they could find him doing something that they could continue to mount evidence against him so that they might have him killed. We've seen that earlier in Mark's gospel. And so they'd come to where they had heard Jesus was, but they didn't find Jesus. In fact, all they found was nine of his disciples who had been left behind as Jesus had gone away to pray. So the next best thing had just happened. A, a father who had a son who was sick and demon-possessed had come. And now these disciples, well, they were just having a time. They couldn't, they couldn't cast this demon out. They were having a terrible time being able to overcome the power of the demonic. And so the scribes just seized on this opportunity and were able to then to start ridiculing the disciples. In fact, Kent Hughes, he concludes that the, that the scribes were deriding the disciples for their powerlessness. And they were blaspheming Jesus as well. I mean, you consider it along these lines. They were probably saying something along like this. Well, a man's disciple is just as the man himself. And you're powerless and so is your master. If you can't do anything, you know full well that he can't do anything either. Now, make no mistake about it, the scribes play only a small part in this drama that is unfolding, but it's an important part. It's a, it's a telling part. And what it tells us is that there are those in the valley who refuse to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. They refuse to believe that he was the Christ, that he was the Son of God. And we've seen this over and over again as Mark has told us this story throughout his gospel. You remember back in chapter 6, Jesus went back to his hometown of Nazareth. And the Bible tells us there that he could do no miracles among them. Why? Because he was amazed by their lack of faith, their, their total unbelief in who he was. So I believe that when Jesus is addressing the faithless and unbelieving generation down there in verse 19... He certainly has to have in mind the scribes and others who, like them, demonstrated their faithlessness by steadfastly refusing to recognize Jesus as the Christ. But I want you to know the scribes weren't the only ones displaying faithlessness in this passage. In fact, the next point on your outline shows us this. The second point tells us that faithlessness is also demonstrated by a lack of confidence in what Jesus can do. Faithlessness is demonstrated by a lack of confidence in what Jesus can do. Jesus asked the scribes, what are you arguing with my disciples about? What are you saying to my disciples? And, but notice that the man who steps to the front to answer Jesus' question was neither a scribe nor was he a disciple. He's an unnamed man who really, him and his son, are the ones at the center of the dispute. He was the one who had brought his son to Jesus because his son was sick. And he was possessed by a mute spirit, as the father says. And then notice how the detail with which the father describes the son's physical malady. He, he says that that mute spirit not only kept him from being able to speak, Jesus later calls him a deaf and mute spirit, so he likely could not hear either. But notice what else. The father went on to say that the spirit would seize the boy, throw him down, make him foam at the mouth, gnash his teeth, and then cause him to become as stiff as a board. Now, because of that explanation there are many in the secular world and many who do not believe that the, the, 
the trueness of the Bible would say, you see that right there proves that the Bible's not true. The Bible talks about demon possession, but if you'll read what Mark describes there, he's really describing the situation that someone undergoes when they have epilepsy. And so what, they were just unenlightened. They didn't understand what medical analysis really can provide for them now. Science has already proven that there really, there was no demonic presence there. It was just a problem that the boy had with his neurological functions. And listen, I believe modern medicine has been able to do wonders in identifying physical maladies and, and providing invaluable diagnosis that, that help treat people who are suffering with physical illnesses. But friend, that does not mean that the demonic is not actively engaged in causing problems in physical nature for people. That certainly was the case with this boy, and, and, and the text reveals that. Notice that when Jesus asked the father, how long has this boy had this, this, these issues, the father says, well, he's had them from childhood, but then he notes this. He says, and often he, and he's referring to the demonic spirit here, often he has thrown him, that is his son, both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. In other words, what this text reveals to us is that there was a malevolent, there was a demonic force that was intent on destroying this boy, on, on creating havoc in his life. As Kent Hughes has written in his commentary, as such, this boy was a perfect example of Satan's motivation, which is to destroy the image of God in mankind. You see, the Bible tells us that as humans, we are the image bearers of God. He created us in His image. We bear His image. And so to the degree that Satan can destroy that image within us, he considers that to be a victory over God. Now, am I saying that every sickness and every illness that we experience is demonic in nature? No, I am not saying that at all. I am saying this, the Bible says that based upon what we learn in Genesis chapter 3, based upon the fall where Adam and Eve sinned against God and were disobedient, and because of that the fall happened, in other words, it wasn't just the fall of humanity, but it was the fall of all everything, that you and I experience sickness and physical maladies today because of that disobedience. But I would also say this to you, and that is, as the scriptures testify, some illnesses, some disorders, just as we see here, are caused by the demonic. Further evidence of that comes to the fact that when Jesus tells them to bring the boy to him, immediately the Spirit caused the boy to seize at that moment, threw him to the ground, threw him into one more of, a, of a, an epileptic-type seizure. Most scholars attribute that fact to the fact that that happens to the fact that the demon knew exactly who it was that he had come in contact with and encountered. And the demon also knew the power and the authority that Jesus had over him. But the text reveals that the father is not so sure. True, he had brought his son to Jesus. No doubt he had heard about Jesus, the healer, the miraculous worker. He had heard that Jesus could do things and, and nothing else had ever been able to help his son. And so he decided to go to where he had heard that Jesus was. He would do one last ditch effort to try this Jesus fellow out to see if he could actually do what other people had said he could. And he had gotten there hoping against hope that Jesus could help. But Jesus had not been there. He had gone away up to the mountain to pray. So in his absence, Jesus' disciples, his emissaries, his his group that he had been training, they had attempted to deliver the boy, but their attempts had come up short. And what made things worse was now all these scribes, these religious 
groups were, were, were throwing all kinds of jeers and jabs at the disciples. And, and the whole mess had just turned into a disaster. And so having explained everything to Jesus, the father then looks at him in verse 22 and says, If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. You know, when I read these words, I, I can't help feel sorry for this father. As a father myself, I, I, I know what it's like to hurt when one of your own children is going through tough times. I remember 10 years ago this month, I was driving up Interstate I-75 in Tennessee toward Knoxville and I was following an ambulance and in the back of that ambulance was my wife and my middle daughter Maggie. And Maggie had developed uh, a respiratory infection that had caused her oxygen level to drop to a dangerously low place and we had taken her to the doctor that morning and the doctor had said You've got to get her to the hospital. And he called the ambulance. And here I was following that ambulance up the road. And there in front of me is a major part of my life. And, and as tears streamed down my cheeks, I couldn't help but be scared. And want nothing more than to see my daughter get well. And, 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 and the solace that I took was the fact that she was in the hands of some professionals who knew what they were doing. And so I, I had confidence that, that she was going to the right place and that they were going to be able to help her. But this father, he's taken his son to Jesus and, and the doctor wasn't in. And instead he had his disciples and one after one after one after one they had laid their hands on him and they had anointed him and they'd done all these things and, and, and did all of these kind of incantations and the boy was just as bad now as he was when the father had first brought him. So he looks at Jesus and he says, listen, if you can help, if you've got any power, can you help us? Show some mercy. Show some compassion. As I said, I'm willing, I'm willing to give the Father a pass. But Jesus didn't. Jesus, as I noted there in, in the way that the New King James translates it, I believe a better way of translating verse 30, 23 is, is what Jesus says to him. The ESV translates it this way. He says, if you can, listen, all things are possible for one who believes. The New Living Translation actually translates the verse and actually turns it into a question that Jesus asks. He says, what do you mean if I can? All things are possible for one who believes. In his commentary on this passage, Mark Strauss writes that the issue is not Jesus' ability. Rather, it's the willingness to respond in faith. Since everything is possible for one who believes. William Lane paraphrases the verse this way and says, says Jesus says to the Father, you, you say if you can to me, but that isn't the issue. Of course I can. No, my friend, the burden is on you because all things are possible for one who believes. Here's, here's the point. 
The father, though he had hoped that Jesus would, would help, and now, but now by his own words, he acknowledges his doubt of, and lack of faith that Jesus was actually able to do anything to help his son. Friends, that's, that's exactly what it means to demonstrate faithlessness. It means lacking confidence that Jesus has the power and the authority to help us in our time of need. And Jesus challenges the father, even as his son lie right there in front of him, seizing and foaming at the mouth. Jesus tells him that a doubting heart, a faithless heart, that is the problem. After all, if Jesus truly is the Christ, if he is the Messiah, if he is God of very God, then there is nothing that he cannot do. But friends, we must be careful. We must be very, very careful. You see, this verse is one of those verses that's often ripped out of its context and lifted out of what the Bible is actually saying here and, and said to mean something else. It's often used as the rationale for saying that whatever a person wishes will come true if he or she will just believe hard enough and have enough faith. In some cases, this verse is taught to mean that God can even be controlled, manipulated to do whatever we desire Him to do if only we will believe hard enough and strong enough and deep enough. Consequently, when, when, when parents and family have prayed for the healing of a child or another family member. But that healing has not come. Some have said that they simply weren't praying hard enough and didn't have enough faith. Friend, I want you to make no mistake about it. That is not what this passage is saying. And God will not have anything to do with that kind of man-centered and man-driven theology. God is not a God to be controlled, manipulated, or steered by us. You see, the point that Jesus was saying here was not the amount of faith that the man had. The point was the object of the man's faith. If, as Jesus states elsewhere, that faith the size of a mustard seed can move a mountain, then, then what Jesus is emphasizing to this father is not the depth of his faith, but rather the direction of his faith. You see, though we do not always know God's will, nor do we know specifically how God is going to answer the prayers that we pray, He nevertheless calls us to have faith in Him. He calls us to have faith specifically, as Paul will later write in one of his epistles, that He is God who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ever ask according to the power that works in us. So... In this passage, we've already experienced two displays of faithlessness in this text. One by the scribes who refused to recognize that Jesus was the Messiah. And the second by the Father who lacked confidence in what Jesus could do. But notice there's a third display of faithlessness. And this one is the most glaring demonstration of all. And to make it worse, it's committed by the ones closest to Jesus. The ones who should have known better. The third point on your outline this morning is this. Faithlessness is demonstrated by an overconfidence in what we can do on our own. We've already referred to this. When in Jesus' absence, the disciples decided that they would have a go at trying to deliver this boy from this demon that possessed him. And should we think that they were just being presumptuous, let's also remember, though, back in Mark 6, 
Jesus had commissioned his disciples. He'd called them to himself to send them out two by two that they could go out and, and that they could uh, have power over unclean spirits. And in, in verse 12 of Mark 6, we find that they went out and they preached that people should repent and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So what we know is, is that when they were presented with this boy who was demon-possessed and going and having all of these seizures, this was not their first rodeo. They had encountered such things as this before. But this time things were different. One after one, I can imagine them laying hands on this boy and, and speaking to him and doing all kinds of things, so much so that they had drawn a tremendous crowd who was watching to see what would take place. And each time they had failed, and spectacularly so. And as a result, the scribes were taunting them, and they were jeering not only them, but also Jesus. All the while, this boy lay there, racked with pain, under the influence of evil, struggling to survive. And the disciples were confused. Why couldn't they deliver this boy? Why, why couldn't they do the things that they'd been able to do before? In fact, that's the question that they want to know. Down in verse 28, after everything had taken place, they pulled Jesus after he goes aside into the house the disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? Jesus responded to them by saying, this kind can only come out by prayer. Some of you will notice that in your versions, you didn't have the two words there and fasting. The King James and the New King James have that. The oldest manuscripts that we have do not have that. And we do know that, that fasting is something that does accompany prayer often in the New Testament. But it's very likely that, that that was not what Jesus said. It was probably something that was added by a copyist later. But nevertheless, the point is, is that Jesus is saying, you do need prayer. But the real question of verse 29 is what he says here by saying that this kind can only can come out by nothing but prayer. Does he mean that in some situations that some demons are just so big and bad and ugly that, that, that it takes something special to get them out? Does he mean that, that in a situation like what they encountered here, that, that one of this kind of nature, you can't just use minor leaguers to, to, to play the game. You've got to have a major leaguer to come in there and do that. Is that what Jesus is saying? I don't think that's what Jesus is saying at all. In fact, the question that the disciples ask actually betrays where they're coming from. They want to know why couldn't we cast it out? Personal, plural, pronoun. Why couldn't we do it? We'd done it before. Why weren't we able to do it this time? And Jesus is saying, guys, here's the point. When you're going to engage in the, this kind of spiritual warfare, when you're going to engage in the, in the whole era of what you're engaged with here, you can't do it on your own. There's no we. It only comes through prayer. It only comes through when, when you finally to decide that you're going to pray about it. One commentator assesses the situation this way. He said, there in the valley, faced with a stubborn demon who inflicted pain and trouble on this young boy, the disciples were self-deceived into somehow thinking that the gift that they had, that had received for exorcism, was under their own control, that they could exercise it at will. Thus, they did not think to pray. They forgot that there had to be a radical dependence upon God if His power was to course through their lives. In other words, Jesus was teaching them that the faith that brings power is a faith that prays. 
Please notice that Jesus did not admonish them to pray longer prayers. He didn't admonish them to pray more eloquent prayers or more passionate prayers. He just told them they needed to pray. One preacher put it this way, lack of prayer is evidence of our lack of faith in Jesus, but our strong faith in ourselves. That had been the case with these disciples. Their faith was strong, but their faith was in the wrong place. It was in themselves, rooted in their abilities and in their past successes. But unfortunately, though they had great faith in their own abilities, they found out that they made very weak saviors. Friend, the same is true for each and every one of us in this room. No matter how strong you are, no matter what successes you may have experienced in your past, regardless of how prepared and trained you may be, an overconfidence in what you can do on your own demonstrates faithlessness. So we've examined three different examples of faithlessness in this it's evident to us in this passage. And briefly, I just want to give you the antidote. I want to give you a brief, a brief cure, an answer to these. The first answer comes in the fact that Jesus commanded the demon to come out of the boy. And guess what? The demon came out. Verse 26 and 27, after crying out and convulsing him terribly, the demon came out and the boy was like a corpse. So that most said he is dead, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. Friend, make no mistake, that is resurrection language that Mark is using. And he's using it to draw our attention to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God who has all authority and all power, not only to cast out demons, not only to heal our sicknesses, but to raise us from the dead. If you have been, if you have been demonstrating faithlessness by refusing to recognize Jesus as the Christ, then friend, I want you to know that the evidence that he is who the Bible claims him to be is right here in front of us. Only Jesus has the kind of authority that can command all things, all creatures everywhere to do as he commands. And one day, one day you will give an account to him of your refusal of his authority over you. So the first antidote to faithlessness is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, which will follow, as the Bible says, and be saved. The second comes in the response of the father once he was confronted by Jesus about his lack of confidence in the Lord's ability to heal his son. The man looked at Jesus, having been confronted by the Lord himself of his lack of faith, and then he says to him with tears in his eyes in verse 24, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. One writer put it this way, here is an honest man, one of the most transparent characters in the Bible. His faith was trembling, his faith was imperfect, but it was real. A faith that declares itself publicly and at the same time recognizes its weaknesses and pleads for help is a real faith. And as another has put it, weak faith in a strong Savior is better than the greatest faith than we can ever put in ourselves. Here's the point. There's not a one of us in this room, not a one, including your pastor, who can say that our faith never waxes and wanes, 
Not a one of us can say that there are some times when we have great faith and that has been demonstrated to us and that we, are, that we are expressing in the Lord Jesus Christ and that we never falter in that faith. Not a one of us can say that. And the majority of the time, our weak faith is a result of our circumstances that we find ourselves in. You see, we don't always live on the mountaintop. Duty calls us to the valley. And in the valley, life away from the, the brilliance of God's glory... Life that is surrounded by evil and by pain and by struggle. Well, there our faith often fades. But at those moments, at those moments, a prayer like the one that that father prayed, Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. Well, that may be the most appropriate prayer that we could ever pray. And really, that's the third and final cure that our text provides us. We need to pray. Prayer. It ought to be said of us that we are a praying people. We need to recognize our complete and total dependence upon God. We need to recognize our dependence upon Him when we're weak, but we also need to recognize our dependence upon Him even when we think we're strong. Because without Him, we are nothing. The Bible says this, that, that it is impossible to please God without faith and that we need to be a people who are ex expressing that faith through prayer. I love this quote. No matter how much faith you think you have, prayer shows how much is actually there. So as I conclude this morning, I want to leave you again with just three short statements. I borrowed these from Danny Aiken again, so full disclosure. But I think they're so good, and I, I hope that you'll remember them, even write them down. That you'll think about these as you go, because it doesn't matter if you're on the mountaintop today or if you're in the valley. Truth is, we're going to experience both in our lives, just as the girls sang about it that for us earlier in their songs. We're going to be there sooner or later. Whether you're on the mountain or whether you're in the valley, I want you to understand this. You will never advance beyond your need of Jesus. You will never, ever advance past your need, absolute need of Jesus. The second thing you need to know is this. You will never advance past your need for faith in Jesus no matter what's going on no matter how good life is or no matter how bad it is you will never advance past your need for faith in Jesus the third thing is this you will never advance past your need for prayer never recognizing those things then leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning which is this life in the valley which is marked by evil and pain and struggle. Well, that necessitates a faith in Jesus as Savior that prayerfully acknowledges our utter and complete dependence upon Him. How is your faith this morning? With whom do you most identify in this story? Could it be that Christ is calling you to a deeper faith? Could it be that He's calling you to redirect your faith not toward yourself or toward other things, but toward Him? Could it be that Christ is wanting you to acknowledge that your faith is weak, but that you're willing to pray for this strength? Could it be that He's calling you to quit depending upon your own strength and successes and instead through prayer acknowledge your complete dependence upon Him? 
Brothers and sisters, our desire is that when the Lord calls us home or when he comes again, as the Bible says, he will find us faithful, not faithless. And for us to do that, then we need to trust the word of what it tells us because brothers and sisters, this is the word of God and it's for the people of God. Let's pray together. Father,